Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome back Marna Borgstrom, CEO of Yale New Haven Health. Marna and I left off last time discussing microeconomic challenges facing healthcare providers. We'll take a different tack today and tackle some macroeconomic issues. Marna, thanks for coming back. I'm delighted to be here. You know, in, in my writing, I've compared the U.S. healthcare system to the British aristocracy of 100 years ago. Disproportionately resourced, out of touch with the working class, and susceptible to exhausting the public's patience with excessive consumption. Do you see any similarities between us and the aristocrats of Downton Abbey? I have to tell you, this makes me laugh um, because I haven't I haven't heard that postulated before, but it feels frighteningly familiar. You know, that probably gives you part of the answer, which is, yeah, it feels uncomfortably familiar. You know, coming from a career in academic medicine over 42 years, I have to start by saying I wouldn't be here in and have stayed in academic medicine if I didn't love it and I didn't believe um, in it and all that it has to offer and all that it does for healthcare, healthcare delivery, planning, all those things. However, I think we as academics have tended to get very insular in the way that we have looked at the care and service that we provide. And historically, um, there has been a bit of an attitude that we build things as they will work best for us. And that includes how we bring people into parts of our system. And there is um, an underlying uncomfortable uh, feeling that people should be grateful that we are taking the time to see them. And so when you talk about the British aristocracy, you know, it just resonates a little bit too much because, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody on an individual basis sees themselves thinking about healthcare that way or practicing that way. But um, in the aggregate, I think we have not um, evolved as much as we need to. You know, I, I had an opportunity to be in a very small group with an individual who is a senior, I can't remember the title, but um, strategist for Amazon. And I found it to be one of the most compelling events that I went to because basically the message was very clear. Uh, Amazon exists for one reason and one reason only, and that is to serve their customers. So if they're not doing that, they don't have um, a reason to be there. Everything they do, they work backwards from the customer. Um, they invent everything they invent on the customer's behalf, and they don't accept either or thinking, you know, but they, you know, listen, they ask questions, but they recognize that customers aren't going to tell them everything. So they have to fill in the blanks. You know, I could go on because I found this very compelling. And if you substitute either use customers, some people in healthcare don't uh, like that, or you use, you know, our patients. Uh, we exist for one reason, whether it's in education, whether it's in research, or whether it's in the delivery of care. We exist um, to support creating a better healthcare and healthcare experience 
uh, for patients because without patients, we're not in the business. Um, and I think that's been lost in some cases. The thing that strikes me, uh, Sandy and I, a couple of summers ago, uh, took a trip over to England and visited High Clear Castle, which is the setting for Downton Abbey. Mm. Was the kitchen great? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I actually think that the kitchen is is on a set somewhere because the library looked exactly the way that you remember it on on television, but they didn't let us down downstairs uh, into the kitchen. So it's either too great for them to have let me in or maybe not so great. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's when this that's when this uh, this idea struck me. You know, if we're not careful in healthcare in the next 10 years, we will balloon up to the point where the typical family of four is spending $50,000 a year on their own healthcare and on the taxes that they pay for Medicare and Medicaid. And, and that frightens me. And the thing that frightens me is the fact that as kind of similar to the aristocrats uh, in the early 1900s, we're losing sight of the fact that there's an, an entire strata of the population struggling and, uh, and, and living paycheck to paycheck. And if we're not careful, a dollar that we don't shepherd carefully is redirected from their consumption of other goods and services to healthcare. And that's one of the things that really makes me uneasy. How about you? It makes me very uneasy. And um, increasingly, uh, we hear from uh, people regularly uh, about the impact that their financial obligations to us have had negatively on their lives, um, you know, up to and including people declaring uh, bankruptcy. You know, it is it is very concerning. I mean, I go back to an earlier conversation you and I had. Uh, we have a great sick care system, and people often come into our organizations. And if somebody's really in extremis, what they, what family will always say is, "I don't care what it costs. I just want, you know, Uncle Joe uh, back. I want it to be the way uh, it was before." But that isn't the majority of care. And the majority of care are things like, um, you know, if it costs less to get a CT scan in a physician-owned uh, ambulatory radiology uh, practice, and uh, it costs three times that amount to do it um, in many of our, you know, hospital or hospital-based, health system-based uh, facilities, um, we're pricing ourselves out of the market because even though we can say, well, you know, ours is a, you know, 50T unit, whatever, people don't understand the differences between images. Um, they don't understand how to assess value in healthcare. So, you know, I think for the average person, value is what you pay and what you get and what they feel they got because they aren't able to discern, you know, did I get the right diagnosis? Did I get um, the right uh, antibiotic given to me? They assume we know what we're doing. And, you know, and I think it's very challenging for us to get that value equation right, because the only thing people can really evaluate is what their experience was like and how we made them feel. You know, you and I have known each other for long enough that, that we're uh, on the verge of completing each other's sentences. As you were speaking about prices, it, it struck me 
no one would design a healthcare system from scratch with the kind of price variation that we have in the United States between government payers and private sector payers and even between different providers negotiating whatever the market will bear. Yale is faced with uh, these enormous cross-subsidizations just to make the math work. Marna, if, if I suggested to you that for a lot of reasons, uh, including the inability of the market to understand value, if I said to you an all-payer rate-regulated public utility model, not a public health plan or health system, not Medicare for all, but just an all-payer rate-regulated public utility model where providers competed on service rather than on price. If I said that would be better for the country, would you think I was crazy? Uh, if you had asked me that probably even um, five years ago, I might have said, yeah, you're a little crazy, Tom. Um, but I would actually tell you now that I don't think that's crazy at all. I actually think in some form, that's where we have to be uh, headed. And I would have a couple of caveats in looking at it. But to give you a context, um, for the Yale New Haven Health System, across our system, 65% of our patient volume every place is paid for by the state or the federal government. And Medicare, which is the largest piece of that, we lose about 11 cents on the dollar of cost, not price. Price has nothing to do with this on cost. And that's, you know, in part because we have um, extra costs associated with teaching, et cetera. But we're losing money on 40 plus percent of our patients. Medicaid, and, you know, we all like to argue our states are the worst, but in Connecticut particularly, we're losing 53 cents on the dollar of cost for nearly a quarter of our patients. So you're not even covering all of your uh, variable costs um, in most cases. So if you're losing money and losing a lot of money on a quarter of your patient volume, but you're losing money on 65% on of it, and 35% is non-governmental pay, what happens? You're running 130, 170, 180% to be able to produce a fairly modest bottom line, not one that anybody would invest in if we were publicly traded companies, you know, to be able to generate enough uh, excess margin to be able to invest in the business. So this is not a sustainable um, payment proposition, in my opinion. But my caveats would be, we have to be more than nuanced uh, about what an all-payer or some system like that looks like, because, you know, a piece of my roots are in academics. And, you know, there we don't have a federal policy on how many of what kinds of providers we want to train and how they should be trained in large measure um, people who use academically oriented institutions end up paying through that cost shift and through Medicare for the graduate medical education add-ons for the training and development of, you know, our future medical leadership. That's kind of a crazy system. But we have to have a perspective and a supportable uh, plan as part of an all-payer system to recognize 
that we want people to be able to provide care and treatment in the future and not just be here and now motivated. The second thing that I would say about an all-payer system is it can't be administered by the federal government or the state governments for that matter, because I think then too much gets caught up in politics um, and healthcare is too important to be, you know, subject to whatever nonsense is being played out in Washington at a point in time. You know, I think you make an excellent point. In fact, earlier in, the, in our conversation, one of the things when we were talking about social determinants of health, it occurred to me that one of the benefits of having the healthcare providers involved in wrestling with the manifestations of social determinants is that it can be an apolitical approach. And if we go back to the British aristocrats uh, conversation, tongue in cheek for a moment, if you made me king, one of the things that I would do in, in addition to leveling how you're paid, I would want you to be payer agnostic. I'd like you to, to take care of patients and not have to worry about uh, where they came from and, and who was paying the bill. Um, but again, I couldn't agree with you more. That can't be a lobbying uh, enterprise. It can't be vested interests. It needs to be kind of level-headed, uh, logical people. One of the reasons that I'm interested in promulgating the idea is I'd like to see the providers involved in the design and the functioning of something like that, rather than waiting until we get down the road so far that it has to happen to us. You know, I completely agree with that. And I actually, um, though I may not have sounded like it all throughout, throughout our discussion, I'm pretty much of an optimist. And I actually think one of the good things about the healthcare that I'm involved in is our physicians do largely practice in a payer agnostic way. And what I mean by that is as we're building clinical pathways, as we're trying to standardize things that you can um, create standard algorithms around in healthcare across the health system, uh, if you try and tie that to a value-based payer contract, and maybe you're successful doing that. And so that becomes the um, the process by which care is being provided uh, for joint replacements or for diabetes for a certain patient population. The reality is the physicians don't do an insurance biopsy. When somebody walks in, if they're sort of practicing in a certain way, they don't walk in and say, oh, that's an Anthem patient. I'm doing this for Cigna. They practice the same way once they get something that they've either learned or they believe is the right way to do it. They're going to do it for all patients. You know, I could tell them, you know, till the cows come home that I only want you to do it for this particular patient segment. It's not the way they practice. I think that's right. And I, th and I think it's good. I think it's one of the things about multi-specialty practice and salaried physicians that, uh, that, that puts, it, puts us in a situation where they do what they think is in the best interest of the patients and let the financial chips fall where they may. I think that's absolutely right. You know, one of the things that I admire about you is your candor and, and the fact that for years and years, whenever I listen to you talk, whether it's at a board meeting or wherever, um, you know, kind of a no nonsense, we've got to do the right thing. So I was asking you earlier this year what you thought about how the pandemic might disrupt traditional succession paths for young administrators and, and future uh, healthcare leaders. And you said something kind of interesting back then. You said leadership is leadership. And some of the things that were important before are still going to be 
uh, important after. What did you mean by that? And what do you think we need more of from healthcare leaders uh, in the future? So I could give you two answers. I could say, damned if I know what I meant by that, which, which is a lot of what happens a lot of the time. But, you know, I actually do recall that conversation. And one of the things that, that we've been trying to do as we spend a lot of time and in investment and in talent development across our health system, I remember when um, a couple of my board members said to me, you really should be spending a quarter to a third of your time on this Marna. And I said, you know, you got to be out of your mind. And in fact, that is what I am doing now. And we look at, you know, we reward people annually, you know, as the adage goes for what they did, what they said they were going to do and what they did. Did they hit the metrics? Did they not um, hit the metrics? Um, But we promote people for their potential. And potential, in my opinion, is not based you know, literally on what you've done in the past. It's kind of the cumulative how you've developed, how you do what you do. And the things that I think are most important for leaders, I think, number one, leaders have to lead with humility. You know, we don't get anything done by ourselves. And, you know, striving to balance um, the achievement of excellence with how we accomplish goals Uh, by never losing focus on why we're doing it is really important. Being self-aware. I mean, those are things that are really important. And I don't think that that's, you know, pre-pandemic or post-pandemic. You have to be courageous. That doesn't mean, you know, taking stupid risks, but it means taking thoughtful risks. It means learning from your mistakes. It means not letting conflict avoidance, not have you do the things that you know you need to do. Driving alignment and collaboration. Nobody gets anything done uh, by themselves. You know, holding ourselves and one another accountable for producing measures, you know, that are consistent um, with approved strategies and actionable business plans, valuing the contributions of our teams, um, and nurturing an environment that allows teams to really learn and collaborate outside of traditional hierarchies. You know, we have to model diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that, you know, it, coincident with the pandemic year, that's never been more important. And if we really model it, if we do it, it will also inform how we drive alignment, collaboration, and outcomes. And then I, you know, and I think we have to continue to strive um, for improvements, innovation, you know, and innovation is not, you know, finding the next uh, 3D printing to patent something. I think innovation can be small innovation. You know, how do you create a more logical way of getting to one of your questions earlier, right patient in the right bed at the right time or whatever it is? It's, you know, sometimes it's just patient flow management or not just, but patient flow management. So innovation comes in many different ways. And I think supporting that and celebrating it, you know, and the old failing fast when it's not working out is really important. But I think, you know, humility, courage, alignment, the things that I've talked about, I think those are pretty ubiquitous. They were important before we went into the pandemic and they're important now. I appreciate your insights. And you mentioned a a phrase that I'd like to wrap up with. Um, You you mentioned self-awareness. I'm going to take you back to uh, kind of a a humorous story that you closed an earlier session with uh, as you were um, 
in your waders in a trout stream in Colorado. And uh, you and I both uh, share a, an avid interest in what I would call wilderness fishing. You in in the mountains, and uh, you know I've enjoyed being up in northern Saskatchewan near the tree line, where it's so quiet you can hear it. Is one of the ways that I describe it to folks that have never been there. In the area of self awareness, um, there, there's something almost spiritual about the quiet. Uh, when you're out in the in, in the middle of nowhere, what have you learned about yourself that you would credit to kind of just time on the water? You know, I I think patience is one thing. Um, you know, I'm uh, I have to be patient with myself because as much as I think my casting improves all the time, I'm really terrible. Um, and uh, you know, and I just um, you know I catch more tree trout some days than I catch real trout um, as I I try and fish. So you know, I I think patience, but I also think appreciation, appreciation for what's around us. And I'll tell you a very quick story. This goes back, my older son is 36 now. And when he was probably 12 or 13, we took his best friend out to Colorado with us. And this, you know, sort of gangly 13-year-old who thought he wanted to be a Navy SEAL, now he's an investment banker, uh, but he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And he's out and standing in the middle of the stream. And I'm teaching him how to cast upstream and then mend his line downstream. And we did it a couple of times. He caught something and then all of a sudden he stopped and he looked around and he said, now this camp, by the way, is at 9,000 feet. So you're way, you know, I love your uh, so quiet, you can hear it uh, comment because you're not near anything. And this 13-year-old kid turns around and goes, you know, Mrs. Borgstrom, every direction I look in is more beautiful than the other one. Mm. That's appreciation. Yep. Yep. And you don't get that from teenagers very often. No. Well, you know what you don't get very often either is the chance to uh, to visit with a very, very good friend. You know, Marna, you've been what I always characterize as an unwavering supporter of our work for the better part of a quarter century. And I appreciate the fact that, that you not only allow us, but you encourage us to uh, to provide what I would refer to as the unvarnished perspectives. You've been a powerful voice in the industry for doing the right thing. And I can't thank you enough for being with us and having folks get a chance to know you better, not just today, but for a long, long time. Well, thank you very much. And it is a mutual admiration society, Tom. Thanks, Marna. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking and look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>